This is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods, and it is Friday. Yes, Friday. The weekend is upon us. That means we have one work day left before we get a day off, and then we get to go to church. So this is my day to once again pester you that if you do not have a sound biblical church to attend, find one. You need to be part of a church. Um, and if you are part of a church, you need to be more involved. What is the best way to become more involved with your local church? Attend regularly. That's the thing. Attend regularly. And then when you see or hear about a need that is something that you can meet, then help out. There's all sorts of things that you can do that don't require a lot of effort, you know, but get involved in your church. And, and, and by get involved, I mean, be there, <laughs> be there, participate, <laughs> Uh, attend services, attend Sunday school, you know, go to Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever your church's schedule is, be involved in it. That's the way to be involved in a church. So find a good, solid Bible-believing church and build your life around it, as Tom Askell says in that clip I play all the time. Build your life around the church. That's where your focus ought to be. You know, fathers, take your family to church. Single people, find your spouse at church. <laughs> it's, it's you know, older people, teach younger people. Younger people, you learn from the older people. That are there. I mean, it's, it's all in the Bible, right? But you can't be a Christian you're not a church member sitting on your sofa watching a live stream. Um, it just isn't the way it works. It's not the way God designed it. You need to be a part of a church. So Sunday's coming. Get your butt in the pew. <laughs> All right. This is Squirrel Chatter for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. Squirrel Chatter is a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. It's also a podcast that pesters you to go to church. We webcast every Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday. Enunciate. Squirrel, enunciate. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on X, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. I guarantee it. All right. What do we got coming up today? We have scripture reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. And we have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. 
And it's Friday, so it's Federalist Friday. We're going to be looking at Federalist number 46 today. Um, just something I saw on Twitter this morning. I, A, we don't have cable, so I don't watch a lot of... I didn't clip my earpiece to my collar, so it's tugging on my ear. It's like, why is this bothering me? Oh, because it's just hanging there. There we go. Sorry, technical difficulties. Um, I was looking at the news this morning or on Twitter, and apparently somebody on MSNBC says that if you believe that your rights came from God, you're a Christian nationalist. And all I could think was, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So, I guess it's true. America was founded as a Christian nationalist nation. We'll talk more about this on Monday Meandering, but the, 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 uh, um, the whole explosion that took place last week because of the Alabama Supreme Court decision that said that the frozen embryos are indeed humans and deserving of human rights and protection. Um, IVF, the whole subject of IVF and everything. We're going to talk about it on Monday. But um, in that decision, they quoted the Bible or, or referred to the Bible. I'm not sure. I haven't read the decision. I'll, I'll, I'll read it by Monday because I want to know exactly what they said. But the, the, uh, they made a reference to Scripture. And the left went nuts. And all I could think of was how many references to the Bible there are in written documents from our nation's history. Everything from speeches by politicians to court decisions that have referenced the Bible. Uh, Laws, the, the actual bills of laws that were passed through Congress that made reference to the Bible because God is the standard of morality and all legislation, you know, all law is legislated morality. Oh, you can't legislate morality. Really? Why do we have laws against murder? Isn't it because we think it's immoral? <laughs> It, 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 there's there's an illogic and a and a disconnect, and and so this is once again one of the reasons why we're doing Federalist Fridays, and why we're going to you know when we finish going through the Federalist Papers, we're going to go slowly and carefully through the Constitution, talking about what it says, what it means, and why it says what it says. So yeah, we're going to exegete the Constitution with the Federalist Papers as our guide, because these Federalist Papers that we are re reading were written to urge the states to adopt the new Constitution, and they were written by the people that drew, that drew up the Constitution, explaining what's in it, explaining what's not in it, explaining why this or that was an unbased fear. Um, I think we've seen some of the ones about you know, federal overreach and everything. 
and realized that maybe they could have made the Constitution a little stronger in limiting the government. But I, I don't think the problem is the Constitution. I think the problem is the current government's adherence to it. Um, as I once saw on a bumper sticker that I so, ever since the day I saw it, I wished I had bought it, and I didn't. It was in a gas station on one of those racks of bumper stickers, and uh, I think I was I was waiting for Mrs. Squirrel to come back from the bathroom and looking at it. And it said, the Constitution of the United States isn't perfect, but it's better than what we've got now. <laughs> and that's very true. That's very true. And, and it's one of the reasons why our school system isn't teaching the Constitution anymore. They don't teach the founding of the nation. All they teach is that European white supremacists came to North America and stole the continent from the natives. That's the extent of American history. Oh, and they brought slaves with them. That's the extent of American history taught in our schools today. They don't understand. Um, I was listening to Victor Davis Hanson yesterday, and he was talking about just some basic questions that, you know, if you walked up to somebody on the average college campus, they couldn't answer. What's the difference between World War One and World War Two? Who is Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Yeah. It, it, what, they, they can't tell you, you know. Um, or we've all seen the man on the street, Fourth of July things, who... Um, I remember watching a video of a guy doing man-on-the-street type interviews at a beach at the 4th of July. And here's all these people running around in their swimsuits. And he's asking these young people, you know, what, what holiday is today? You know, it's Independence Day. Well, who did we win our independence from? And they had it all confused with World War II, with the Civil War. With, I mean, it was like... You know, who did we win our independence from? France? <laughs> they didn't know. You know, they had no clue. Um, you know, Mexico, Canada, <laughs> who did we win our independence from? Um, they, they just didn't know. They just didn't know. And, and it's, it, it, it's the failure of our education system. Because we have an education system that is designed not to educate. It's designed to indoctrinate and shape opinions. It is not designed to educate. It doesn't teach facts and it doesn't teach reason. It propagandizes. Um, one of the reasons why I am so down on public education and you need to get your kids in a good doctrinally sound Christian school or you need to homeschool them. And uh, it, it's, it's very important to the future of your children and to the future of our nation. Um, one of the uh, Congress people whose name escapes me at the moment apparently uh, just issued a... Um, or, or introduced legislation in Congress that would eliminate the Department of Education. I was dancing and singing when I saw that. That would be the best thing in the world. <laughs> uh, 
not the best thing, but one of the best things in the world would be to to get rid of the Department of Education because it doesn't educate anybody. And and the government doesn't need to be involved in the education of our children. Not the, not the federal government, not even the state government. Local government, I think, has a role. Now, I would be happy if the federal government said, it is for the good of the United States that children be educated. And the federal government is going to allocate so much money per year per student from grades, you know, grades first through, first through 12, so much money per student per year for their education. Parents can take that money and they can use it to send their kid to a good private school or to purchase materials for homeschooling or and make the schools compete for this funding. Yeah. But but don't don't make laws that require students to go to public school. Um, it, it, you know, in Germany, it's against the law to homeschool your children. They don't want parents teaching their children. They want the state teaching the children because they want the state to um, direct the children into nice little state, uh, state-configured personages and not into individual thinking persons. Um, they don't want the parents passing on their values and ideas. They want the state's values and ideas to be communicated to the children. Um, and that's, that's true all across Europe. Um, and it's a, it's a scary, scary thing. So that's why we're doing Federalist Friday. Let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our scripture readings today are Exodus 2 and Psalm 52. But first, we will pause because I need to refill my coffee. Oh. 
when you've opened the thermos, the aroma of the coffee has hit my nose. Get that to balance. Don't want to drop the stopper on the floor. Don't hold over. I, I just lotioned my hands, and the uh, the thermos is slippery. That's always a... There we go. Cup of coffee. Nothing fancy this week. I am drinking Costco San Francisco Bay French Roast. Um, long a staple in my coffee pot. Mainly because it's good and it's relatively inexpensive. Um, which is hard to pass up. Oh, good stuff though. But after I'm done with this, I got some Herb's House, uh, Herb's House coffee uh, house blend ready to go. So that will be uh, that'll be a joy. And I need to get some Squirrely Joes. I haven't had any Squirrely Joes in a while. And I've also got uh, bags of that reminds me. Make a note. I need to get a couple of bags of Glacier Blend to take to friends buy coffee for the Butlers and the Caldwells. Always take them a bag of Glacier Blend because Montana Coffee Traders doesn't ship to California. Probably has something to do with some onerous California regulation that the Montana coffee traders refuse to abide by. Um, so they don't ship to California. All right. Exodus chapter 2. Did I read the... We didn't read the prayer, did we? I don't think I read the prayer. I wouldn't do the prayer. If I did read the prayer, we're reading it again. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning... Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so our scripture reading is Exodus 2 and Psalm 52. Exodus chapter 2. And a man from the house of Levi went and took a daughter of Levi as a wife. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And she saw that he was beautiful. So she hid him for three months. But she could not hide him any longer. So she took for him an ark of papyrus reeds and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child in it, into it and put it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile, with her young women walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the ark among the reeds and sent her maidservant, and she took it to her. Then she opened it and saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. 
Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it happened in those days that Moses had grown up, and he went out to his brothers and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his brothers. So he turned this way and that, and he saw that there was no one around, so he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Then he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling with, the, with each other. And he said to the wicked one, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. And Pharaoh heard of this matter, so he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to give water to their father's flock to drink. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses rose up and saved them and gave water to their flock to drink. Then they came to Ruel, their father, and he said, Why have you come back so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he actually even drew the water for us and gave water to the flock to drink. And he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is he that you have le- why is it that you have left the man behind? <coughs> Call him so that he may eat bread. And Moses was willing to settle down with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it happened in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the slavery. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew them. And now, Psalm 52. Psalm 52. For the choir director, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good. Falsehood more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah, so that the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold, the man who would not set God as his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and was strong in his destruction. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. 
I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever, because you have done it, and I will hope on your name, for it is good in the presence of your holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. Now our reading from Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Today's devotion is Differences in Withstanding the Storm. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Matthew seven twenty-five and 27. Dr. MacArthur writes, Everyone's religion, whether true or false, will be tried one day. That test will determine with great finality who are the wheat and who are the tares. In other words, the unredeemed will be revealed from the redeemed. When the storm of final test comes, those whose houses are on the bedrock of Jesus Christ and his word will be spared from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. However, those whose houses are on the sand will not be spared, but like the goats in Jesus' prophecy of the end times, will go away into eternal punishment. Matthew 25.46, see also Exodus 12.23 and Revelation 20.12 and 15. The house of the wise man, the life and ministry of the genuine believer, is spared because he has built carefully and faithfully with a sense of substance and divine importance. After obediently doing all that God commands, he humbly realizes he was only doing his duty. Luke 17.10 The house of the foolish man, the life and ministry of the pseudo-believer, suffers a devastating judgment from the storm and is destined for eternal punishment. Because of this inevitability, everyone who claims to be a Christian must carefully heed James's words, Prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. James 1.22 The greatest difference between wise and foolish resides in what promise from God they can claim. To the wise, he says, in the words of the hymn, Though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Ask yourself, those who are foolish in planning and preparation are often foolish as well in their assessment of the damage. Why do those whose lives are falling apart not seem to notice? How can you help one you know? How can you help one you know? By knowing the word of the God and sharing the gospel with the lost. All right, it is Friday. Federalist Friday, Federalist number 46 out of the 85 Federalist Papers. Today's Federalist Paper is entitled, The Influence of the State and Federal Governments Compared. From the New York Packet, Tuesday, January 29th, 1788, author James Madison. Remember, these were not simply written to the people of the state of New York. These were written to the people of every state 
It was the ones published in New York that have been preserved for us down through the decades, centuries. So we read, To the people of the state of New York, Resuming the subject of the last paper, I proceed to inquire whether the federal government or the state governments will have the advantage with regard to the predilection and support of the people. Notwithstanding the different modes in which they are appointed, we must consider both of them as substantially dependent on the great body of the citizens of the United States. I assume this position here as it respects the first, reserving the proofs for another place. The federal and state governments are in fact but different agents and trustees of the people, constituted with different powers and designed for different purposes. The adversaries of the Constitution seem to have lost sight of the people altogether in their reasonings on this subject, and to have viewed those different and have viewed those different establishments not only as mutual rivals and enemies, but as uncontrolled by any common superior in their efforts to usurp the authorities of each other. These gentlemen must here be reminded of their error. They must be told of the ultimate authority wherever the der derivation may be found resides in the people alone, and that it will not depend merely on the comparative ambition or address of the different governments. Whether either or which of them will be able to enlarge its sphere of jurisdiction at the expense of the other. Truth, no less than decency, requires that the event in every case should be supposed to depend on the sentiments and sanctions of their common constituents. Many considerations, besides those suggested on a former occasion, seem to place it beyond doubt that the first and most natural attachment of the people will be to the governments of their respective states. Into the administration of these, a greater number of individuals will expect to rise. From the gift of these, a greater number of offices and emoluments will flow. By the superintending care of these, all the more domestic and personal interests of the people will be regulated and provide for, provided for. With the affairs of these, the people will be more familiar and minutely conversant. And with the members of these, will a greater proportion of the people have the ties of personal acquaintance and friendship and of family and of party attachments. On the side of those thereof, the popular bias may well be expected most strongly to incline. Experience speaks the same language in this case. The federal administration, though hitherto very defective in comparison with what may be hoped under a better system, had during the war, and particularly whilst the independent fund of paper emissions was in credit, an activity and importance as great as it can well have in any future circumstances whatever. It was engaged, too, in a course of measure which had for their objects the protection of everything that was dear and the acquisition of everything that could be desirable to the people at large. It was, nevertheless, invariably found, after the transient enthusiasm for the early Congresses was over, that the attention and attachment of the people were turned anew to their own particular governments, that the Federal Council was at no time the idol of popular favor, and that opposition to proposed enlargements of its powers and importance was the side usually taken by the men who wished to build their political consequences 
on the prepossessions of their fellow citizens. If, therefore, as has been elsewhere remarked, the people should in the in future become more partial to the federal than to the state governments, the change can only result from such manifest and irresistible proofs of a better administration, as will overcome all their antecedent propensities. And in that case, the people ought not surely to be precluded from giving most of their confidence where they may discover it to be most due. But even in that case, the state governments could have little to apprehend because it is only within a certain sphere that the federal power can, in the nature of things, be advantageously administered. The remaining points on which I propose to compare the federal and state governments are the disposition and the faculty they may res respectively possess to resist and frustrate the measures of each other. It has been already proved that the members of the federal will be more dependent on the members of the state governments than the latter will be on the former. It has appeared also that the, that the prepossessions of the people on whom both will depend will be more on the side of the state governments than of the federal government. So far as the disposition of each towards the other may be influenced by these causes, the state governments must clearly have the advantage. But in a distinct and very important point of view, the advantage will lie on the same side. The prepossessions which the members themselves will carry into the federal government will generally be favorable to the states, whilst it will rarely happen that the members of the state government will carry into the public councils a bias in favor of the general government. A local spirit will infallibly prevail much more in the members of Congress than a national spirit will prevail in the legislatures of the particular states. Everyone knows that a great proportion of the errors committed by the state legislatures proceeds from the disposition of the members to sacrifice the comprehensive and permanent interests of the state to the particular and separate views of the counties or districts in which they reside. And if they do not sufficiently enlarge their policy to embrace the collective welfare of their particular state, how can it be imagined that they will make the aggregate pro uh, prosperity of the union and the dignity and respectability of its government the objects of their affections and consultations? For the same reason that the members of the state legislatures will be unlikely to attach themselves sufficiently to natural object, national objects, the members of the federal legislature will be likely to attach themselves too much to local objects. The states will be to the latter what counties and towns are to the former. Measures will too often be decided according to their probable effect, not on the national prosperity and happiness, but on the prejudices, interests, and pursuits of the government and people of the individual states. What is the spirit that has, in general, characterized the proceedings of Congress? A perusal of their journals, as well as the candid acknowledgement of such as have had a seat in that assembly, will inform us that the members have but too frequently displayed the character, rather of partisans of their respective states, than of impartial guardians of a common interest that where on one occasion improper sacrifices have been made of local considerations to the aggrandizement of the federal government, 
the great interests of the nation have suffered on a hundred from an undue attention to the local prejudices, interests, and views of the particular states. I mean not by these reflections to insinuate that the new federal government will not embrace a more enlarged plan of policy than the existing government may have pursued, much less that its views will be as confined as those of the state legislatures, but only that it will partake sufficiently of the spirit of both to be disinclined to invade the rights of the individual states or the prerogatives of their governments. The motives on the part of the state governments to augment their prerogatives by defalcations from the federal government will be overruled by no reciprocal predispositions in the members. Were it admitted, however, that the federal government may feel an equal disposition with the state governments to extend its power beyond the due limits, the latter would still have the advantage in the means of defeating such encroachments. If an act of a particular state, though unfriendly to the national government, be generally popular in that state, and should not too grossly violate the oaths of the state officers, it is executed immediately and, of course, by means on the spot and depending on the state alone. The opposition of the federal government or the interposition of federal officers would but inflame the zeal of all parties on the side of the state, and the evil could not be prevented or repaired, if at all, without the employment of means which must always be resorted to with reluctance and difficulty. On the other hand, should an unwarrantable measure of the federal government be unpopular in particular states, which would seldom fail to be the case, or even a warrantable measure be so, which may sometimes be the case, the means of opposition to it are powerful and at hand. The disquietude of the people, their repugnance and perhaps refusal to cooperate with the officers of the union, the frowns of the executive magistracy magistracy of the state, the embarrassments created by legislative devices, which would often be added on such occasions, would oppose in any state difficulties not to be despised, would form in a large state very serious impediments, and within the settlements of several adjoining states happened to be in unison, would present obstructions which the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. But ambitious encroachments of the federal government on the authority of the state governments would not excite the opposition of a single state or of a few states only. They would be signals of general alarm. Every government would espouse the common cause, and correspondence would be opened. Plans of resistance would be concerted. One spirit would animate and conduct the whole. The same combinations, in short, would result from an apprehension of the federal as was produced by the dread of a foreign yoke. And unless the projected innovation should be voluntarily renounced, the same appeal to a trial of force would be made in the one case as was made in the other. But what degree of madness could ever drive the federal government to such an extremity? In the contest with Great Britain, one part of the empire was employed against the other. The more numerous part invaded the rights of the less numerous part. The attempt was unjust and unwise, but it was not in speculation absolutely chimerical. But what would be the contest in the case we are supposing? Who would be the parties? 
A few representatives of the people would be opposed to the people themselves, or rather one set of representatives would be contending against 13 sets of representatives with the whole body of their common constituents on the side of the latter. The only refuge left for those who prophesy the downfall of the state governments is the visionary supposition that the federal government may previously accumulate a military force for the projects of ambition. The reasonings contained in these papers must have been employed to little purpose indeed, if it could be necessary now to disprove the reality of this danger, that the people and the states should, for a sufficient period of time, elect an uninterrupted succession of men ready to betray both, that the traders should, throughout this period, uniformly and systematically pursue some fixed plan for the extension of the military establishment, that the governments and people of the states should silently and patiently behold the gathering storm and continue to supply the materials until it should be prepared to burst on their own heads, must appear to everyone more like the incoherent dreams of a delirious jealousy or the misjudged exaggerations of a counterfeit zeal than like the sober apprehensions of genuine patriotism. Extravagant as the supposition is, let it however be made. Let a regular army, fully equal to the resources of the country, be formed and let it be entirely at the devotion of the federal government. Still, it would not be going too far to say that the state governments with the people on their side would be able to repel the danger. The highest number to which, according to the best computation, a standing army can be carried in any country does not exceed one hundredth part of the whole number of souls or one twenty-fifth part of the number able to bear arms. This proportion would not yield in the United States an army of more than twenty-five or thirty thousand men. To these would be opposed a militia amounting to near a half million of citizens with arms in their hands, officered by men chosen from among themselves, fighting for their common liberties, and united and conducted by governments possessing their affections and confidence. It may well be doubted whether a militia thus circumstanced could ever be conquered by such a proportion of regular troops. Those who are best acquainted with the last successful resistance of this country against the British arms will be the most inclined to deny the possibility of it. Besides the advantage of being armed, which the Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation, the existence of subordinate governments to which the people are attached and by which the militia officers are appointed forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition, more insurmountable than any which a simple government of any form can admit of. Notwithstanding the military establishments in the several kingdoms of Europe, which are carried as far as the public resources will bear, the governments are afraid to trust the people with arms." And it is not certain that with this aid alone there would not be, they would not be able to shake off their yokes. But were the people to possess the additional advantage of local governments chosen by themselves, who could collect the national will and direct the national force, and of officers appointed out of the militia by these governments and attached both to them and to the militia, it may be affirmed with the greatest assurance that the throne of every tyranny in Europe would be speedily overturned in spite of the legions which surround it. 
Let us not insult the free and gallant citizens of America with the suspicion that they would be less able to defend the rights of which they would be in actual possession than the debased subjects of arbitrary power would be to rescue theirs from the hands of their oppressors. Let us rather no longer insult them with the supposition that they can ever reduce themselves to the necessity of making the experiment by a blind and tame submission to the long train of insidious measures which must proceed and produce it. The argument under the present head may be put into a very concise form, which appears altogether conclusive. Either the mode in which the federal government is to be constructed will render it sufficiently dependent on the people, or it will not. On the first supposition, it will be restrained by that dependence from forming schemes obnoxious to their constituents. On the other supposition, it will not possess the confidence of the people, and its schemes of usurpation will be easily defeated by the state governments, who will be supported by the people. On summing up the considerations stated in this and the last paper, they seem to amount to the most convincing evidence that the powers proposed to be lodged in the federal government are as little formidable to those reserved to the individual states as they are indispensably necessary to, the, to accomplish the purposes of the Union, and that all those alarms which have been sounded of a mediated and consequential annihilation of the state governments must, on the most favorable interpretation, be ascribed to the chimerical fears of the authors of them. Publius. Um, very interesting that we see here why Americans are permitted arms. Think about it. To resist tyranny in your own government. That's what they say. Not for hunting, not for sporting, for fighting a tyrannical government. That the, the usurpations of the rights by your own federal government should be treated in the same manner as the usurpation of your rights by an invading foreign government. Interesting stuff, but there's the reason for the Second Amendment. All right, we'll get to that at a later time when we start going through the Constitution again. All right, let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the first Sunday in Lent. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations, and, as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 
and the colic for endurance? Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory, but before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, through Jesus Christ your Son, our Lord. Amen. And for the unrepentant we pray. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for this Friday. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. Make sure you get yourself to church on Sunday. As you go through the days ahead, remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Go to church on Sunday. We'll see you here on Monday for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.